Thank you, Nell. My Bible's open to Romans 8. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to gather them right now. And thank you for filling those out. We will certainly pray with you and for you in the coming week. Well, it's not a long verse. In fact, the message is based on verse 14. Those led by the Spirit are the children of God. What a distinguishing uh, statement that is. Throughout the history of the Christian church, believers have made po positive contributions uh, to, the life as, to life as we know it. Whether we're talking about the field of education or medicine or compassion ministries or the law or politics, the arts or science, those who follow Jesus Christ have left an indelible mark on, the print, uh, on history as we know it. The fruit of the gospel is seen far and wide. I mentioned many times um, the book by D. James Kennedy entitled, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he has a little section in there on the humble origins of the Christian church and how it's made a difference in, on earth for the good more than any other movement or force in, the, in history. Hospitals, which essentially began during the Middle Ages, were started in large effort by Christians to meet the needs of those who were sick. Universities, most of the world's greatest universities were started by Christians, for Christians, primarily to train pastors and theologians and leaders in the church. Literacy and education for the masses is driven by Christians because Christians have always believed to love the Lord our God is to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind. And so at the heart of Christian um, worldview is a desire to, to, to learn. Capitalism and free enterprise, representative government, all of these uh, receive principles from scriptures. Civil liberties, the abolition of slavery, if you follow the history of William Wilberforce and many, many others, modern science, uh, the discovery of the new world, benevolence and charity and so forth. Um, what, whatever Jesus touched or whatever he did transformed that aspect of human life. And so maybe someone could say, yeah, wait, but wait a minute. Um, you know, even unbelievers make contributions in this world. And that, absolutely, I'm not arguing that the only good things presented in the world are by Christians. We know that's not true. God's common grace is on display in so many ways. So maybe, you know, just by way of introduction, what's the mark of a true Christian? By what we do, certainly there's fruit that should come from our life. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, for one thing, uh, that we truly know the Lord Jesus and are walking in his ways. But there's an assurance given in Scripture that one truly belongs to Jesus Christ, um, not only by the fruit that we bear, but in Romans 8, 14, which is our scripture this morning, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, children of God. That the mark that you're truly a believer is, is really centered on this statement of Paul that you are led by the Spirit and your life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. So how are we to understand the phrase sons of God? Are all human beings sons of God? Um, we read in John chapter 1 that he came to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. So that term sons of God is, is only used to those who are in a covenant relationship with him, specifically in a 
saving faith relationship with Jesus Christ. Sons of God, children of God are described in scripture as those who are in covenant with God, not a covenant of our own making, but a covenant that he's established. And the only covenant of God that's operative and working uh, today is the new covenant found in Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ in a saving faith relationship places one in right standing with God and we're declared righteous by faith in Jesus, but also places us in, in God's family. We're adopted into God's family as sons, as children. I've, I've pointed this out on a number of occasions, but I come back to it, that we've been looking at this legal declaration that by faith in Jesus Christ, I'm justified. I'm declared legally righteous in the courtroom of heaven, but it doesn't stop there. In this same chapter, we're adopted into his family. We're, we're sons of God. It's a beautiful picture. Not only do we have legal affirmation of who we are, but we are sons. We are children of God. So Paul has established in Romans 8 that the law cannot deliver us from sin. What the law could not do, God did by sending his son in sinful flesh in order that he might redeem us from it. The law or whatever human code you claim to live by, what human code of ethics you want to claim cannot bring the redemption we all need as sinners. Neither can self-help or human grit. What help is there for the believer to live a life that's pleasing to God, to overcome sin, to be the light that he's called us to be? It's not within ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, believer. It's the Holy Spirit of God. This, is, this really is the sign of the new covenant, is that we are led by the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit. God has written his law upon our hearts. In old times, he wrote it on stone, but in these days of Christ and his finished work, he has written this law on our hearts and with it a longing to please God. So our source of power and victory and overcoming sin as followers of Jesus is living in the spirit. When is the last time you've thought of that in your daily life? Am I being led by the spirit of God? And as I was thinking about that question, the, the points of this message just began to unfold. And I want to look at it in this way. I want to look first at the promised, the promised helper. And this will require us to go back to John 14. Keep your finger here in Romans 8. Put something in that place and go with me to John 14. And where we are in John 14 is in the upper room. And Jesus is spending his final hours with the disciples, giving them final instruction, parting instruction. And he really breaks their hearts as he says, I'm going away and where I'm going, you cannot go. And he gives that great comfort promise. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And then he gives the, the terms of the gospel. What does it mean to be right with God? We don't come uh, with a, a list of demands. We come based upon what God has done through his son. And he says in verse six, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And he, he promises a helper. He promises comfort for their troubled hearts. They had left everything to follow him. And now he's going. Their hearts were broken. I, I read this week, Charles Spurgeon once, once preached, there are many sorts of broken hearts and Christ is good at healing them all. So how would he do this if he's gone? How would Jesus Christ heal your broken heart if he's gone and you can't see him and you can't touch him and you can't have a meal with him? What comfort can we find? Well, look at verse 16, John 14, 16. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The mark of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which was inaugurated at Pentecost and has come forth to us, um, is that the Spirit of God dwells within us. Look at verse 26 of that same chapter. But the Helper, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he defines him. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is incredible. Look at chapter 15, still in the upper room, still before the arrest of Christ, which was looming. Verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And in chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. Another is coming, another just like me, the third person of the Trinity, who will be with you and who will be in you. So meanwhile, back at the ranch and... Romans 8, we have read already in verse 9 that if, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. If you are a believer in Him, the Spirit of God has regenerated you and dwells within you. Is it inter intermittent? No, He dwells within you. So make your home a heart for Jesus Christ and welcome the Spirit to lead you every day to honor Jesus. This leads, secondly, to the commands I find in the New Testament. The promised helper has come. And secondly, commands regarding the Holy Spirit. I just began to search my concordance, that 2,000-page book. Actually, I use Logos, so I just wanted you to feel sorry for me. And went through all the references to the Spirit and the commands of the Spirit in the New Testament. You know, gee, how long is that going to take? Well, uh, long enough to, for you to feel the weight of what we're called to do as believers with respect to the Holy Spirit. First, live and walk by the Spirit. 
I don't expect you to look all of these. Just maybe write them down or they're actually referenced in your insert. Live and walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're to live by the Spirit and we're also to walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. John Stott explains, in Romans 8, Paul's preoccupation is with the work of the Spirit. The essential contrast which Paul paints is between the weakness of the law to bring about redemption and to help us overcome sin and the power of the Spirit. For over against indwelling sin, which is the reason the law is unable to help us in our moral struggle, yes, we have been saved, but we have an unredeemed flesh. We have a flesh that rebels and needs to be submitted to Christ. Paul now sets the indwelling spirit who is both our liberator now from the law and the guarantee of resurrection and eternal glory in the end. Thus, the Christian life is essentially life in the spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated and sustained, directed and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, friends, according to Dr. John R.W. Stott, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. So we're to walk in the Spirit, to keep in tune with the Spirit. Notice, secondly, we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. Right after Paul gives the teaching on the armor of God, he says that we're to put on each piece in prayer. Actually, a hymn says that, but that's what he's saying uh, in verse 18 of Ephesians 6. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And, and, and praying at all times, he, he says that we're to pray uh, as we put on this armor and to ask God to give us strength in appropriating it. By the way, if you're a Christian, you have the armor of God. Appropriate it. Put it on each day with great care, to pray at all times. Notice thirdly, we're not not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's in Ephesians 4.30. If the Spirit of God dwells within us, we're not to grieve Him. I don't think we have to think hard on what that is, to grieve Him. The Greek word here is to grieve, (laughs) to to afflict with sorrow, uh, to be sad, to cause grief. What do you think would make the Holy Spirit grieve in your, in your life? How would we grieve him? Attitudes, sin, thinking that he doesn't know all about it. All of these things come to bear in how we live the Christian life. Uh, uh, another uh, term, and fourthly, is do not quench the Spirit. If he's dwelling within us, We're commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit. This is an interesting Greek word, to extinguish, to quench, figuratively to dampen, to hinder, to repress, as in preventing the Holy Spirit from exerting his full influence through your life and mine. Don't you long to be a spirit-led church? Don't you long to be a spirit-led Christian? that the fruit of of, of God's redemption in your life would come forth. It's not that you need another second experience of salvation. You and I need to appropriate what God's already given to us to be led by the Spirit. 
How do we do that? Well, I would think in just basic terms, we're beginning each day by calling on the Lord and moment by moment by moment through the day, we're checking in with him and speaking with him and talking, praying with him and asking for help. Oh, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. Help me to see things clearly. Ray Ortland gives a series of brief prayers that he uses. Why, Lord? What do you want me to see, Lord? Asking God questions in prayer. Help me to see this. Man, if I do that, I'll be so distracted. I won't. No, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. You'll be attuned with your, with your Lord as you do your work and live your life. Notice, fifthly, be filled with the Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. And in chapter 5 of Ephesians, um, the filling of the Holy Spirit comes after um, Paul exhorts them to walk in wisdom. So the, the filling of the Spirit empowers us to walk in wisdom. And then he speaks of the evidence of a, a, a spirit-filled life. We're a submissive people. We're a thankful people. We're a people with a, a, fellow, a deep fellowship with God. And right after that section where he commands being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, he goes into that whole teaching on marriage. Isn't that amazing? That the best marriage counseling that can be given is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of all the garbage that would be rooted out. Think of all the troubles that would be gone in a moment's time if, if husband and wife were filled with the Holy Spirit. Right before his teaching on marriage, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, a hopeless and curable sickness, but be filled with the Holy Spirit that you may speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.18 provides this, a significant contrast between spirit-filled living and pagan religions. So this being filled with the Spirit, how does that, you know, we, we're looking at being led by the Spirit. I think it's akin to being filled with the Spirit. And the idea is who's in control of your life moment by moment. That's what it's referring to. Being filled with the Spirit is not the lack of self-control. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you're flopping on the floor like a fish. Being filled with the Spirit means God's in control of my life. I'm in tune with my Savior. And when I'm not, I want to get there. It's a present passive command to be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an, picture it as, 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 as the wind blowing through the sails or the current taking a leaf down the river. That's the idea of being uh, yielded to, to God and for his spirit to flow through us, to be carried along and yielded to the Holy Spirit who does the filling. How do I obey this command? This is not really a prayer request. It's a command that's done to us to be being kept filled with the spirit. It's a surrender of my will. It's, it's, a, it's a dying to self. It's a slaying of uh, my own um, 
desires when they're at odds with God's word. It's, it's really a death to self, which is what Jesus said, wasn't it? It's been some time since I've shared this piece. It bears repeating. What does it mean to die to self? To be yielded to the spirit, to be carried along in all the challenges that come with life. When you're neglected and unforgiven or when you are purposely set at naught and you sting and you hurt at the insult of that oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that's dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed and your advice is disregarded and your opinions are ridiculed and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, you, you take it all patiently in loving silence, you're dying to self. And when you lovingly, patiently bear any disgrace, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with folly and extravagance and spiritual insensitivity and endure it as Jesus did, you're dying to self. When you're content with any food, any money, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude and any interruption by the will of God, that's dying to self. And when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch after commendation from others or when you truly love to be unknown, that's dying to self. And when you see your brother prosper and have his needs met wondrously and honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy and never question God, though your needs are greater and still unmet, that's dying to self. And when you receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and humbly admit inwardly as well as outwardly that he's right and find no resentment and rebellion in your heart, that's dying to self. Are you dead yet? I'm in process too. To be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Notice thirdly, a tale of two lifestyles. We've been noticing in Romans 8, the flesh and the Spirit. He's talking to believers. This is with regard to believers. Two lifestyles that we have to contend with. The flesh and the Spirit. And Charles Swindoll said that these two lifestyles are as opposite as January and July. Our flesh is our sin nature. We have also discovered in the letter to the Romans that we have been set free from ourselves, from our sinful natures. Yes, we will contend with our sinful flesh as long as we live in this world, but greater still is he who is within us than he that is in this world. So the Christian life is really essentially supernatural living led by the Spirit to obey the Spirit. I'm not, you know, as we think about the emphasis here, the importance of how you and I live our lives in humility, obedience, the pursuit of holiness, empowered by God's Spirit. And Paul's point is we won't know what living is until we start living by the Spirit. I think we're like those believers in Acts 19 when Paul came to them, the disciples of John the Baptist, and Paul said, have you received the Holy Spirit? This is in the transition out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. I, feel, I fear many New Covenant believers uh, could say that. I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Friends, if you're a believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
You're called to be led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit. It is the mark that you really are a child of God. And by the way, that's the only way you can know true biblical assurance. How do you know you're saved? How do you know that you're a child of God? Well, I went and saw Brother Jim and he said I was. No, you're not going to ever hear that. I can't give you that kind of assurance. It's the Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. We're not to ignore that. This is not a double blessing theology. What I'm saying to you today is to be born again of the Spirit, to be a believer in Jesus Christ means the third person of the Trinity has taken up residence within your soul. He dwells there. And you're to live your life led by His presence in you. And that's how Jesus Christ is seen through the believer's life. He is in you and dwells within you. Let's look lastly. Look what the Spirit can do when you rest in His power. Here we have come full circle through the upper room, through uh, selected scriptures in the New Testament. Now back to Romans 8, which is really about life in the Spirit. Look what the Spirit can do when we rest in His power Romans 8, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, first, you experience the fruit of his presence. You long to be there. In verse 6, it says, for to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. And the picture there is if you continue to live in the flesh, it really bears witness that you don't know him and you will die in your sins. But, verse 6 says, to set the mind on the spirit That's life and peace. Life and peace. Do you realize how many people pay a lot of money for some peace? And they're looking for peace in all the wrong places. Peace with God. Peace in our hearts. A a quiet conscience. A cleansed conscience. A forgiven soul, life and peace, no shame, no condemnation. And that life is found in Christ, and He came that we might have life and have it to the full. Notice, secondly, the Spirit of God empowers to put to death the besetting sins of our life. What besetting sin is it in your life? Gluttony, greed, deceptions. What is it that's besetting in your life? What is it that causes you to ache? Oh, goodness, how long am I going to deal with this? The Spirit of God empowers us to put to death the besetting sins of our life. Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body. That's how change happens, believer. That's how God gives strength for change to happen in your life. Let's say you're a complainer. I know there are none here, but let's just say for hypothetical reasons, you've got a complaining problem, which really shows, like Israel in the wilderness, you're a grumbler. It's an onomatopoeia in the Greek, where it just sounds like the word, grumbling. 
Paul said to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling and complaining. And you're here today and you say, you know, I've been, I've been really sad sacking it this week. I have, I've been a grumbler. I've been a complainer. And you come under conviction because of this great message this morning. You come under conviction. And you, you say, I mean, I've got to stop that. Lord, how can I stop that? And you take that issue and you bring it into your prayer life and you're thinking about how you want to change it and what it looks like and you begin to take steps towards change. And when you take a step back, oh, there I go again. There's that bent, there's that stream of grumbling. I need to cut it off at the cord, Lord. I, I, I need your help. I need to learn to hate it and see it for what you, you see it as. And then, because Christians are lifelong repenters, we're, conf- Lord, help me to overcome grumbling. And we begin to identify areas and conversations and things that feed that desire to want to complain. And we begin to make changes in our life because we want to please Him. So take your sin to the Lord in that way. And attack it and put it to death. If we're not putting to death sin, sin will be killing us. To quote Owen, when Charles Swindoll first received his driver's license, uh, his father decided to give him a reward. Uh, He told him that he could have his car for two full hours on his own. Those last three words rang in his mind, on my own, as the bells of freedom So he made his way out to the driveway and began his two hours of freedom in his father's car with all kinds of crazy thoughts in his head. He thought about, I wonder how fast this car really does go. (laughs) He thought about where he could go and the kinds of things he could do along the way. He, He felt complete freedom and he felt that because there was no one in the car with him, no one was there in the car to stop him. And no one would be surprised if he went a little crazy on the drive, but he didn't. In fact, when he recalled the story in his book, The Grace Awakening, Swindoll doesn't believe he ever went over the speed limit in that entire two hours. He even pulled into the driveway early. What would possess a teenager to respond in such a way? It had to be nothing else than a relationship with his father built on trust. God is good, and I don't want to grieve him. Wouldn't that change our attitude? That is so often in believers' mind. He's just an ogre. I just got to get him off my my back. I'm so sick of all the thou shalt nots, which is really a jaded view on God's good law. This is the type of relationship described by spirit-filled living Never abusing our freedom in Christ, but finding that our freedom fuels our longing to please God with every area of our life. Thirdly, he leads us. How does he lead us? Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit. He leads us in this way, to say no to sin in moments of temptation. He leads us to serve We see a need and our heart is inclined to want to serve God and we're picking up the basin and the towel and we're washing the feet, as it were. He leads us to love and good deeds. He leads us to give. 
He leads us to order the priorities of our life, remembering the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He leads us to witness and prompts us in that moment. You need to witness to her. You need to speak to him. You need to share the hope that is within you. We don't speak on our own behalf, but on Christ. It, it isn't our message that we convey, but as gospel, God is appealing, making his appeal, rather, to the world through us as ambassadors. Fourthly, he removes our fear and reassures us that we are God's children. Look at verse 15 and 16. That is yet to come. But it says, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. The Spirit of God removes our fear and reassures us that we are God's children. We've been adopted into his forever family. Notice, fifthly, he prays for us, this sweet Holy Spirit. Verse 26 and 27 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's something going on in that verse that is profound, that the Spirit of God is interceding for us. Can anything be more encouraging to, than to know that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, your Savior, according to Hebrews 7.25, is making intercession for you at the right hand of the throne of God, and that the Spirit of God who dwells within you is making intercession for you? Could anything be more comforting than that? All to ensure that you believe and to know that he will never leave you or nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Notice also one final note in Romans 8. He gives us a glimpse of our future inheritance. In verse 17, if we are children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The Spirit of God reminds us he's a foretaste of greater things yet to come. He's the down payment of greater things yet to come. The thrills, the joys, the moments of wonder that you experience in part in the Christian life in this world. The glories of heaven that you are allowed to experience in moments of, of living in this world are yet just a foretaste of greater things yet to come. So let me ask you, are you led by the Spirit? Well, sometimes, I know, I, I, I know what that means. Are you, are you led by the Spirit? Would you bring this simple, terse verse into your life? I think it could be tr life transforming for you and for me and for this body, that we would be a church led by the Holy Spirit Maybe you don't think in those terms. I don't, I don't think in those terms, Pastor. I've never been challenged to even think about that question. You should. You should think in that way. This is basic to the Christian life. Being led by the Holy Spirit is a true sign that you belong to him, that you are a child of God, that you hear his voice guided by his word, and that you live for Jesus. So could we, in these closing moments, as we come to a point of responding to God in faith, could, could we pray for the Spirit's leading in your life and in mine? Could we pray for the Spirit's leading in this church and not just in our church, but faithful churches throughout 
Ascension Parish, if throughout South Louisiana, could we pray for the leading of the Holy Spirit with our mission partners and our gospel partners around the world? Could we pray for God's Spirit in our ministry that he would bring to light things that need to be done with the gift set of this church to fulfill our mission until he comes and we see him? Praying for the Spirit's power. Maybe this morning it would begin with you praying for personal surrender in your life. All that dying to self stuff, that's not true of you. As you make assessment and look at your life. And you know that it needs to happen. Some of you, I believe, uh, have been wrestling with issues of surrender in your heart. You know God's leading you to do something and you're fighting him tooth and nail. Stop it. Be led by the Spirit of God today. Believe that he's greater than your apprehensions. I'm not trying to talk you anything. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. I'm saying be led by the Spirit of God. And if we're constantly wrestling and chafing and bothered by his commands in our life, that's not being led by the Spirit. Maybe you need to confess your sins today. It's blocked the fellowship. It's hindered the prayer access. It's dogged your steps. And you keep holding on to it. And you need to follow the example of David, whatever it may be. Father, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Maybe you need God's power today. I was sharing in my connect group just having some incredibly sober conversations over the last few weeks with people really on the brink. Seemingly hopeless situations. A family ripped apart by internal bitterness and anger and strife and unforgiveness. A Christian family ripped apart. Those that are dealing with financial woes that are so devastating to be reminded that God is able. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe you're a student, you're being bullied. Lord, lead me by the Spirit, even in in these hard circumstances, to help me to represent you well. For Christ and his glory, we want to be led. May God lead us. Would you bow your heads with me? And as we come to the close of the service, maybe you're without Jesus Christ. And this whole message this morning, you've heard that God loves you. In this way, that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who paid a substitutionary death on the cross. And he is what you need most. You can't reach God by your code of ethics. But by and through Christ alone. And this morning's a morning of surrender to him. Whatever the need is on your heart, we have this time in our worship service really to respond to what the word and what the spirit has brought to light in our life. This is not a time of manipulation No guilt trips here, just getting right with God. Dear Lord, we want to be led by your spirit. Would you help us to latch on to that simple and straightforward verse as the way we're to live our Christian life? Would you lead us as a church to see the power of the spirit in us and through us and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.